I just got my new New King James Bible, so you guys don't have to mess with my King James anymore. Actually, I had to buy three of them before I found one that felt like it was the right size, <laughs> kind of like Goldilocks. But, but um, we're going to start going through the Bible. We're starting in Genesis. And on Wednesday nights, um, we'll survey the Bible. I'm going to, we'll see how fast I can go. I have these ideas in mind that I can go through it really fast, but the Bible has a way of bogging you down sometimes, and we'll see, we'll find out. But <clears throat> the basic format on Wednesday nights, we're just going to go through and survey the chapters that we're coming to this Wednesday. Um, there'll be communion this Wednesday also, which takes some more time, but it's the first of the month, so that's what we do. And then we will... Uh, just go through the first couple chapters of Genesis, basically dealing with creation, and we're just going to keep moving through. I'm going to see how how fast I can I can race through it just to get an overview. I'm thinking like three years, but we'll see. Um, maybe the Lord will come back before we're done. So that'll be that would be great. I would take it right now. Um, the book of Genesis is it'll we'll go slower in the beginning because there's so much that's involved in the book of Genesis. Um, it, Genesis is basically a basic outline of Genesis. You have four great events and four great men. The events are creation, the fall, the flood, the Tower of Babel. The men are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And so that's kind of to think your way through the book, that's what we'll do. Obviously, creation being only two chapters takes a lot more time, um, but I'm determined to get through it um, this Wednesday. And, um, and then we'll just see what kind of a pace we can set. Before we look to Genesis 1-1, let's look to the Lord to help us. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for giving us your word. And in it, we know that all the answers to every question we could ever ask are here. You've given us your truth. You've given us everything that we need for life and godliness. And we thank you for that. God, we can't understand it on our own. And I pray that you would help us to understand it. And this morning, as we talk about creation, as we talk about what you did when you made the earth and when you made us, when you made man, Lord, I pray that it would be understandable, that I wouldn't cloud it too much, but that, Lord, your, your truth would become obvious and we would realize that we don't have to throw our brains out the window in order to believe what you say. So God, help us to see the truth, to be open to the truth, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 1.1. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Just one little sentence, one little collection of words, but in those words, so much. In fact, everything that we understand about ex our existence hinges on this. And a lot of people say, well, why is that such a big deal, you know, God creating the earth? A lot of people nowadays believe that it just kind of happened, and what's wrong with that? But the way we understand all of life is determined by, well, as one, I know Chuck Colson in his book on worldviews um, called How Now Shall We Live, he says that there are three questions, and how you answer those three questions determines your whole view of life. And those three questions, he says, is where did I come from? And that is, who am I? Secondly, how'd things get so messed up? And third, how do you fix it? And the way that you answer those questions determines your worldview. For a Christian, where did I come from is that God made me. 
for a Christian, how did things get so messed up? We'll see next week, the fall, man sinned, goofed up. And for a Christian, how do we fix it? It's redemption, the plan of salvation, God sending his son Jesus to the world to save us. Every different worldview and every different religion answers those questions in a different way. And how you answer them, though, determines how you make sense out of everything that's here. The book Genesis, the word Genesis is the Greek word that means beginnings. And uh, in the Hebrew, the, the book was called Bereshith, which is the first word of Genesis 1-1, which means in the beginning also. Here we see where it all starts. We see, okay, now we're, in order to understand something, you kind of have to trace back to where it came from. And that's what the book of Genesis is all about. How did all this stuff come about? And when we start talking about things like this, it involves some scientific concepts and things like that. And I, and I really don't want to bore you to death, but we're going to have to kind of discuss a few things that, that just so that you understand that as Christians, we're not just blindly saying, I'm just going to believe that God spoke the world into existence. And it doesn't really matter what we find in science. It doesn't really matter what the teachers say. We'll just ignore the facts and we'll just accept what God says because we don't have to do that. That's not what God wants us to do. Um, on the other hand, you know, though we, do, though we want to accept what God says, if it contradicts with that which science discovers, you go with God's word. Yet God doesn't want us to just blindly accept it. He wants us to take a look at it. And I think it's smart as people, if we're gonna base our life on the belief that God made us, I think it makes sense that as we, as we look at his word, we ask ourselves the question of does this make sense? Is this credible? Is this feasible? Does it sound like something that really could be the case? And through, through looking at that, I'm gonna drag a few scientific ideas out for you. I remember hearing um, Dr. Wildersmith speak the first time and, and after he spoke, he, was a, he had like four earned doctorates and he was talking about creation. And, and after he was finished walking out of church, I heard somebody say, I didn't understand a word he said, but I'm glad he's on our side. <laughs> and I hope that's not the case. But I think as we look to, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, it makes sense to say, does this make sense? Is this something that we can really believe? Or is it just some blind sort of concept that doesn't gel at all with reality? Because personally, I don't want to follow a, a belief system that isn't right that didn't actually happen. I don't want to build my faith on a bunch of myths. I don't want to build my faith on a bunch of wonderful metaphors that ultimately aren't really what happened. And so when I look at the Bible and I want to look at the world that, we're, that we live in and look at ourselves as people, I'm going to ask the tough questions. I want to. I think God would have us to do it. In the beginning, Bereshith in Hebrew. Now, for centuries, scientists would all scoff at the whole idea of there being a beginning. Going back to the fourth century BC, people like Aristotle and Plato postulated that the universe goes back indefinitely, that there wasn't a time when it started, that it's just always been, that everything that you see has always kind of been there, it's just made adjustments. It's changed, it's developed, but basically, you don't have to worry about a beginning. Because right away when you talk about if there's a beginning, somebody had to do it. Someone had to, there, there had to be a beginner, someone who was starting things. And so, basically, up until 
30 years ago or so, from, from at least four, you know, 400 BC and, and even before that, people were believing that the universe just went back indefinitely. But there have been a lot of modern discoveries in science, modern meaning at least since the 60s and maybe even back into the 40s and 50s, that have started giving us the hint that the Bible isn't so foolish about talking about the beginning after all. That this isn't just wish fulfillment, this isn't just some sort of dream that people made up, some ancient document. But in actuality, nowadays, there are very few scientists who don't believe that there was a beginning. There are very few scientists who today are saying that the universe goes back indefinitely. Um, there are a lot of discoveries that have kind of led to that, and I won't bore you with them in any great detail, but it starts with Einstein and what you, what you understand about the theory of relativity. Basically, Einstein got everyone thinking about the fact that, uh-oh, if things are progressing, if you revert back, there had to be a point of origin at some point. But in, and then they began to understand about the fact that the universe is expanding, and they learned that, if you want, you can look it up, but it's, you've heard about the red shift, maybe? No, probably not. But what that means, some of you have. What the red shift is, is they look at, at light, and they look at planets that are distant, and through looking at the, the difference of, of the levels of light and the way that the light refracts, what happens is you understand that the universe is expanding. We used to think that the stars were all in the same place, but actually we find that we're moving through space, that the universe is expanding. And if the universe is expanding, obviously you reverse the process. At some point in history, it had to start in a particular place. But in 1965, there was a discovery of something called background radiation. In, it's a microwave radiation that's in the background that's kind of like the footprint of creation itself. It's, a, it's the existence of a radiation that allows you to go back and to realize that all this thing started from a common era. Now, background radiation presents a lot of problems for a lot of things in science, but it's something that's that scientists are dealing with, and, and uh, there are some scientists who that's their specialty to figure it out. But what came out of the discovery of background radiation in 1965 was all of a sudden now everyone believed in what's called the Big Bang Theory. And however you say the Big Bang Theory, what it comes down to is that all that we see, all of the matter and energy and everything that's spread around, it all started in one place. Well, that's exactly what the Bible says happened that there was a beginning, that this is something that happened. Now, on Wednesday night, I'll deal a little bit more with the age of the universe and some of those kinds of questions. We don't really have time to do it. The important thing that I want you to note is the Bible says in the beginning, and though for a long time people thought that wasn't even meaningful or sensible, the fact is that almost any credible scientist nowadays will say, yeah, there, you can speak of a time when there was a beginning. But here, as it says, in the beginning, now, God created the heavens and the earth. That word bara, to create, means almost every time it's used, to make something out of nothing. And so here is a statement that God took nothing and he made something out of it. Now, if we look at the world today, I think a good question is, does it seem like this is feasible? Does it seem like this is a world that has been made? that was made by an intelligence, that was made by someone who knows what he's doing? Or does this world seem to be more random? Does it seem to be more just like it happened? And I think that you don't have to look very far to look at this world to discover that you can certainly understand why people believe in a God. 
Because the way this world is, it's completely suitable to support life as we know it. And if there were any little change in the world today, it just wouldn't work. This is something that in science they call the anthropic principle. It comes from anthropos, which is the Greek word for man. And they refer to the anthropic principle as the principle that this world seems like it was made for people. It seems like that's the way it was because there's no other planet and there's no other you know, solar system that we've discovered yet that looks like it's anywhere close to where man could live there. And when you begin to look at our world, you realize, boy, isn't it amazing that the earth just happens to be the distance that it is from the sun? Because what's so amazing about it is if it was a little bit closer, we'd burn up. And even if we were able to adjust, I mean, some of you have maybe lived in Phoenix or something, and you think, oh, you know, you could get used to it a little hotter. Some people are banking on hell as being kind of like Phoenix, you know. But this isn't something that you could just adapt to because we're talking about the physical properties of chemicals like water, for instance. And if we were a little, little closer to the sun just a by a slight degree, the water would all evaporate and life wouldn't be supported. If we were a little bit further away from the sun just slightly, the water would freeze and it wouldn't be useful. And of course, we would freeze too. We can handle the, the slight variances, but our environment is made to support people. You can go to parts of this world where it won't because of just the slight differences. But how did the earth get just in the right place? It couldn't have gradually found its way there. Life couldn't have developed if that was the case. You know, and, and then you look at just the existence of how much water we have. If there was a little bit more water, the land would be covered. If there was a little bit less water, the whole cycle of life couldn't happen. All these sorts of details and the way in which we're designed, you look at it and say, wow, it almost, if you didn't know any better, you'd think somebody made this specifically to support people, specifically to work this way. It's the way it seems. You think they're trying to find water somewhere else. Water is really a unique, I mean, it's what so much of our life revolves around it. More, you know, two thirds of the world is covered by it. And yet, you know, water is like the only fluid that we've found that acts the way it does. And one of the things that it has that's really unique is when you freeze it, it becomes less dense. So ice floats rather than sinks. Now, I'm thankful for that because when I drink lemonade, I don't like if the ice is at the bottom, it jams on your straw. But even God had something even more amazing in mind because if, if ice froze on top of the water and it sunk, it would kill everything in the water. The only way that we could, this planet could support life is for, is for water to be less dense when it freezes. Nothing else does that. It's, you see things like that and you look at the world and you go, wow, it does look like there's a design. You certainly can't blame someone for looking at the world and thinking it seems like it was designed. Well, we have ways of looking at things and determining whether or not they were designed or whether they happened randomly or whether they happened by laws of nature. There's a book by a mathematician named William Dembski the Inference of Design is the name of his book, I think. And, and Dembski in there talks about, here are some little clues to tell whether something happens from being random chance, whether something happens from uh, natural laws, and whether something happens from design. And he has his little filter, and he uses some simple cues in order to look at a phenomenon and decide whether or not it's random, um, you know, comes from natural law, or whether it's by design. And he says that, if something's random, it's going to be really highly irregular and unspecified and unpredictable. For instance, something that's random is the shape of clouds in the sky. 
You go out and you look at the clouds and you don't, you know, maybe you think God's trying to speak to you through the clouds, but mostly you think, wow, look, looks kind of like a poodle and kind of not like a poodle. But if the, if the wind blows it a little more, it looks like a bunny rabbit. And it blows it a little more and it looks like Saddam Hussein, you know, and it's just, it just happens. It doesn't look exactly like them. You know, like a potato that's grown and looks like Paul Newman. It doesn't look just like Paul Newman. It's just, you use your imagination. But that's something that happens randomly. It just kind of happens and, and we don't say, wow, what makes it do that? It's just, it just happens, it's random. Now, on the other hand, if you go down to the beach, you notice that the waves come in and they're very similar. And the ripples of sand on the seashore are very regular. That's something that happens because of natural laws, the acting of, the, of gravity on the water and how the tide comes in and out at a certain time. And, and you can predict it. You can check the tide charts. You can look at surf reports. And, and you can have a pretty good idea of how those things are going to happen. Now, those are things that happen by natural law. And things that happen by natural law are very regular. They're very predictable. And they're more unspecified. They're not, they're not clearly communicating something. They just happen. That's the way they happen. Now, on the other hand, if you're walking along the shore and you're looking at these regular ripples on the sand, and all of a sudden you see in the sand, John loves Mary in a big heart, you don't think, wow, it's amazing. The water just kind of washed in and made it say that. <laughs> see, that's highly specified. It's unpredictable. That's something that we would say someone did this. Sandcastles don't just happen from the tide. You look at it and you go, yeah, common sense says, look at the characteristics of what I'm looking at. This is something that someone did. You don't wonder. You go drive through the countryside and you see mountains and the wind acts on them a certain way and there's erosion and the rain comes and washes down a certain way and you see a mountain and it looks like, you know, it's shaped a certain way and you see little canyons and valleys coming down through it. Mountains look like mountains. The laws of nature acting on them. But if you're driving along and you see Mount Rushmore, you don't say, wow, that was some amazing wind that just kind of naturally blew through and put those faces on the mountain. No, you realize this is something that's designed. This is something that has design. And certainly when we look at the way the world is, there are so many things, the way that we are, the way that we can function, the fact that we can think about ourselves, this doesn't look like something that the wind blew in. It doesn't, we aren't something that could just happen. It looks like it's something that someone did. They made it. They designed it. Um, and, and certainly as we look at that, there are even people like Carl Sagan who died a couple years ago. But Carl Sagan's big, he was really into evolution. But his big interest as an astronomer and as an astrophysicist was in trying to communicate with other planets. And, and Sagan talked about, they, they were monitoring all of the radio waves that are bouncing around in the universe, and he was hoping to find some evidence of another civilization. Well, it's interesting because the way that he was going to determine whether or not, I mean, there's a lot of radio waves bouncing around out there, but the way that he was going to determine whether or not it was really coming from a language was based on the fact that he was looking for these kinds of qualities. He was looking for some kind of radio waves that were highly specified and unpredictable and irregular. 
And in the same way, he couldn't take that same thinking and look at this world and go, look at the, if you can say there's intelligence behind radio waves that have that kind of pattern of language, how in the world can you look at creation? How can you look at the language of DNA that, that determines how cells propagate themselves and, and can replicate themselves so much? As detailed as DNA is as a language with only four letters in its alphabet, but look what it can do. Why can't you see that there's a pattern there? Why can't you realize that if you just look at what's here, it looks to all appearances and for every intent and purpose as, as bearing the emphasis of, of design, of seeing that that's there, the mere complexity. And so if we look at this earth, you, have, you can't blame people. I don't care if you're you know, some top scientist. You can't blame people for believing Genesis 1-1 because the earth looks exactly like what the Bible says it is, something that was created by an intelligent God, by a God who got all this stuff going, who made it the way it is. And so you look at it and say, well, this is feasible. But what about the alternative? We can't just stick our head in the sand and ignore the fact that today most people out there, and certainly everybody who's in public school and getting that kind of an education is being told that all that's around us just evolved by chance by random chance, fortuitous circumstances and, and accidents and mutations. And, and basically the idea that Darwin kind of popularized in the 1800s in his Origin of the Species, where he says that from very simple creatures, there were various adjustments and mutations that happened and by what he calls natural selection. That is, if something, some accident happens to you and it's beneficial, then the, the civilization, the creation, will tend to continue to repeat those beneficial things because of survival of the fittest. You know, the first person who's really tall and can reach up in the trees and, and uh, you know, grab fruit, it's easier than climbing the trees like a monkey, well, that trait will be carried on. And you go from being a monkey climbing trees to a person who's able to reach up and grab stuff from the trees. Now, this is basically what most people believe is how we got where we are today. And if we're going to say, okay, I believe what the Bible says, I think it's only fair that we take a look at the alternative and see how feasible it is. Is this a a reasonable explanation for how we got here where we did. And there are some problems with evolution, I have to tell you. One of them is there's just no fossil evidence at all. When, when Darwin wrote The Origin of the Species, he predicted that we would find all sorts of fossil proof of transitional forms. In other words, something that was halfway between two different species. Now, we know that there's evolution that exists that we call microevolution within species. We know there are thousands of different kinds of dogs, for instance. But we don't find anywhere something that's part dog and part horse. You know, we don't find anywhere something that's part person and part monkey. You find monkeys, you find people. You find cats, you find dogs. Different variation within the species, but no jumping from species to species. And Darwin predicted that we would find it, but after all these years of digging through fossil records, and believe me, everyone wants to find evidence of this, not a, not a shred of help. You don't find, the fossil record doesn't show any transitional forms. It f shows that individual species pop up in a, in a given area, in a, giv in a given time, but they're just there. And you don't see the kind of development that you'd kind of expect to see. 
Well, they've tried to experiment, and that's been discouraging. Darwin started by breeding birds and, and uh, you know, showing that you could, by favoring certain characteristics, you could determine somewhat how the, how the birds would become. But after Darwin, a lot of people have tried to do it, and they found that as you're, as you're doing interbreeding, you hit a limit. You start breeding certain characteristics, but the problem is it all has to do with engineering the DNA that's there, the code that makes you who you are. And there's a limit. There are only so many different combinations within a given species. And so they found that they can breed and breed and breed, and then they hit a point where it's like, okay, it's almost like God says you're done. This is as far as you can go. And then after they've done all this crossbreeding, if you let the birds go for a while, they end up becoming back like they were in the beginning over after a few generations. And this is disturbing to the theory of evolution. Now, they've always said, well, we don't have enough time. If we had more time, well, thanks to the computer, we can simulate time. We can simulate any kind of an attempt at, at proving evolution. And computers ought to be able to prove it, except it hasn't worked out that way. Because no matter what they do, unless you specifically program it to go a certain way, random chance will not cause evolution to happen. Random chance will cause things to move from a state of order to a state of disorder. That's what the second law of thermodynamics says, that, that anything that is allowed to develop will end up deteriorating. It's like your car is sitting out there, and it's gonna, if you let it sit, it's gonna end up rusting and getting dirty unless you keep cleaning it up. Now, I've always gone with the theory, I, I don't wash my car, and I think of it as a protective coating of dirt. But after, when I go wash it, I find out, uh-oh, you know, there's more little nicks and scratches and rusts and everything. And that's just the way things work. It doesn't just randomly get better. And they've found that through computer simulations that the second law of thermodynamics is real. It's like if you're not into thermodynamics but you're into playing cards, sometimes get a brand new deck of cards. And you know, they're all lined up. There's the hearts, ace, two, three, four, and so on, and they're all in order. We'll start shuffling the deck and shuffle it and shuffle it and shuffle it. And a computer can simulate shuffling it, you know, billions of times. And you know what you find? The deck becomes more shuffled the more you shuffle it. It does not ever rearrange itself, no matter how long you go. It doesn't even rearrange it in any sort of intelligent way. Now, you'd think if you shuffle it enough, all, at some point you're going to end up with all the aces, all the twos, all the threes or something. But it just doesn't happen that way. Experimentation shows that if you let something go, random chance is not going to organize it in a useful way. It's not going to bring about any kind of improvements in it. There are all kinds of other problems with evolution as well. One of them, and this is a buzzword that you can use with people, it's called irreducible complexity. That's the word for the day. Um, irreducible complexity refers to the fact that, that living organisms have many, many elements that if you took one element of them away, the system wouldn't work anymore. Think of it like a, a mousetrap. This is what Michael Behe in Darwin's Black Box says. A mousetrap is only useful if it's complete. You wouldn't invent a mousetrap by saying, first of all, what you do is get a little plate of wood and stick it on the ground and write mousetrap on it. And then you catch a few mice and then you put this little you know, clamp thing on it. And then you catch a few more mice, and then you put a spring on that and cock it back, and then you catch a few more mice, and then finally you put cheese on it, and then it really works great. And look at evolution. 
It doesn't work that way because the little piece of wood, in fact, if you take any one element away, a mousetrap doesn't work. It can't work. And so irreducible complexity says that there are things that if you take one part away from them, they don't work anymore. Now you might go, well, so what? What's the big deal with that? Well, I'll tell you the big deal. Evolution depends on things happening gradually, a little at a time. And if it's not a beneficial change, then there's no natural selection. So the idea, like for instance, your eye, you know, how did, how did creatures evolve into having eyes? Well, your eyeball sitting in there, if it isn't connected up to the optic nerve, it doesn't have all the parts functioning, and if the brain isn't prepared for it, the eye has no benefit at all. It doesn't, it, it wouldn't be there just for looks. <laughs> you know, it wouldn't be there, you know, just because, oh, just, it's just there. It doesn't work until the whole system's put together. And if it's partly there, it's not there at all. It has no advantage. Irreducible complexity says that things the way they're made are so complicated that if you take away one little element, they don't work anymore. And that's a huge problem for evolution. Another problem that evolution has is the whole idea of reproduction. It takes two to make, to reproduce. So you go, okay, the first Adam and Eve. You had to have two creatures independently developing from some scum on a rock. And over the generation, it's amazing, they both turned into matching pieces that fit together that worked. And if you don't do that, you can't have reproduction. If you don't have reproduction, you can't have evolution. And so how in the world, it, it's much more difficult than what you initially think of. A, you know, you see the picture of, of these early men all hunched over and then they start standing up and everything. But no, you had to have the little woman along with that too, evolving at the same pace. It's just, it's kind of preposterous. It doesn't work, it doesn't fit. I'm not saying that people who believe in evolution are stupid. They aren't. Some of the most intelligent people in this world believe in evolution. But these are some issues that they have to deal with. And these are some issues that cause me to look at it and say, boy, evolution creates a lot more problems than it solves. It just doesn't seem to work. Another problem with it is it's just mathematically impossible. And I know if I haven't lost you already, I'll probably lose you here, and I'm sorry. I just think this is important because it's where we came from, and it's what's being taught to every one of our kids in, in public schools, and it's what's being you know, spread through the media. And if you go to Disney World, it's what they're teaching, and Epcot. And, and so that's why I'm spending just a little time on it. And bear with me and just zone out and pretend like you're listening if this doesn't interest you at all. But, let me explain to you in a real simple way how life comes about. Because if we're going to believe that it could happen randomly, then we ought to look at actually what that would take and what it would mean. And when we look at the probability, mathematicians are some of the first scientists who have started to bail on evolution. Mathematicians who are atheists, who aren't Christians. But they are starting to look at what it would take for people to evolve, for life to evolve. And they're saying, uh-oh, this just doesn't fit. This doesn't work. And here's why. In a real simple way, what is life? Life is made up of, basically every living being is made up of a bunch of protein molecules. And each of those protein molecules has a particular function. And so you put protein molecules with different functions together and you have a living organism. Now for something like a man, there are 50,000 or so different protein molecules, each of them with a different purpose in order for us to exist. Well, where do those protein molecules come from? They're made up of, of what is called the building blocks of life or amino acids. 
Amino acids are these little things that are found in, in, in nature, in matter, and those amino acids get put together in, in the right combination and they can create a protein molecule. Are you bored yet? <laughs> now, here's the deal. There are about 80 amino acids. So you think, okay, get all 80 amino acids and put them in a little soup and shake them up and life ought to jump out of it. Well, it's not quite that simple. I don't care how much time you have because here's how involved, here's how complicated it gets. The amino acids out of 80 of them, only 20 of them are used in life in forming a protein molecule. So somehow you have to get all those other 60 that aren't and get them out of the way and get the right 20. And that, that would take you some time. But then also the amino acids that are used for life they have mirror images. There are right-handed and left-handed amino acids. Only left-handed amino acids are used in creating a protein molecule. So now you not only have to get the 20 from the 80, you have to divide those 20 and get the, right, the left side, the left-handed side of it. And then they have to be arranged for some protein molecules, for, for hundreds of them, to be put together in just the right order, in just the right way. Think of those old plastic toys that kids have that snap together. It's like they're all different colors and they have to be arranged in just the right way, find just the right one so that it fits, and they have to be put together in a long strand in order for a protein molecule to even develop. And then those protein molecules have to be put together in order to form life in a way, again, for a human, it would be 50,000 for a real simple organism, a couple hundred of them. And they have to be put together with DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid, which is something that is the language that tells it how to be put together. And to evolve those, forget it, they're even more complicated than a, than a protein molecule. So here's what would have to happen for life to, to begin. You would have to take all of the matter that exists and forget about explaining where that came from, and then have just the right environmental factors. You'd need to have water, you'd need to have other elements that are there. And then from this carbon, you're gonna extract 20 of these 80 amino acids, get the left-handed ones, put them together, line them up all in order and put them together, and then that's just the beginning. And it gets more complicated as you go from that. So, does that make sense? Well, if you have enough time, I suppose. You know, and you can say, well, the universe is really, really old, billions and billions of years, Carl Sagan says. Well, I don't think necessarily that it is, but let's just say that it is. Most recent estimates are placing the Earth at 15 billion to 5 billion years old. And you go, well, that's a long time for you to rearrange those amino acids, isn't it? Well, not really, because the problem is if the Big Bang happened, say, 15, million, 15 billion years ago, it was really hot and it had to cool down and life couldn't form until it got to the optimum temperature. So even if you take the most outlandish scientific explanation of how old it is, by the time you get down to it, you say, you've got maybe 400 million years for life to form, life as we know it. You go, well, 400 million years is a long time. Yes, it is. But what are the odds that one protein molecule could develop during that 400 million years old? Well, they've calculated it. And the odds of one, if you had all of the carbon in the universe all together in one place, the odds of one protein molecule forming from those amino acids in a billion years, which we don't have, but if we had it in a billion years, the odds are one in 10 to the 60th power. That means one in 10 with 60 zeros after it. Scientists consider one in 10 to the 40th power as impossible. This is one in 10 to the 60th power just for that one protein molecule to develop by chance. How in the world would that happen? 
It's like, it's similar odds to if you went to the Sahara Desert and you picked up one grain of sand and you marked it and you tossed it back in the sand and then you bring a blind person over to the Sahara Desert and you have them go wandering out in the desert and they can walk as far as they want and they reach down and they grab a handful of sand and they sift it down until there's just one kernel and you go, look, it's the one I marked. And then he does it two more times, three times in a row. That's about one in 10 to the 60th power. And this is what we're being taught is where we came from. Why would someone want to believe something like that? Very simple. Because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth is a problem. Because you can't live any way you want. Because you have a God who has a claim on your life, who has a right to tell you how to live, who has a plan for your life that's more complicated than just the freedom that you think you treasure so much. I mean, is anything I'm saying big news to scientists? No, of course not. But they hop over it all they want. They play with it all they want. I was reading this week Stephen Hawking, and, and he's, he's a brilliant astrophysicist. And I look at how he deals with these issues, because I don't want to just read Christian people. I want to see what he says. And things like the anthropic principle, Hawking says, it is amazing. It does look like God put us here. And he said, maybe he did. But another possibility is that there are just an infinite number of other galaxies and universes and that maybe there are others like this too. How, how in the world could it be? How, does that make sense at all? But he wants to allow for the fact that maybe there's not a God because he personally has a struggle with God. He personally is fighting against him. But when we look at this world the way that it is and we look at what God says about it, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth makes an awful lot of sense. It really does. And in order to believe in God, you don't have to take your brain and throw it out the window. You don't have to just go, I know this sounds like a fairy tale, God creating the heavens and the earth, but you know, I'll just believe the fairy tale, it's okay. You know, I'm satisfied with that. I'm not satisfied with that. We live in a real world and I wanna know for real that there's a God behind it not just some mystical force. Because that God of the Bible says that he wants to have a relationship with me. That God of the Bible says he loves me. What good is it if he loves me if he's not even there, if he didn't create the world the way he said he did? If we just happen and evolve by chance? What's the value of human life? I mean, if, if mankind just got lucky and evolved the way we did, well, then what's the problem with abortion? What's the problem with assisted suicide? As far as that's concerned, what's the problem with Hitler killing six million Jews? Hey, survival of the fittest. It's Darwinian, it fits, it's okay. But if we were created by a personal God who loves us, who puts infinite value on us, who says we are created in his image, well, that changes the way we look at people, that changes the way we look at ourselves. All of a sudden, that makes people valuable in a way that no humanist could ever fathom. Because we live in an earth that was created by God. We live in bodies that were designed by Him. The one who is behind all of the programming. We, you know, we look at our bodies and the chemicals and this is the hardware, but the software is what really makes us us. And we look at that programming and we say there was a programmer behind it and he's claiming to still love us and to be with us. He's claiming to want to have a relationship with us. Another verse that reminds you a lot of Genesis 1-1 is John 1-1, where John begins his gospel by saying, in the beginning 
was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. That word for word there, logos, is a word that, that referred to intelligence, referred to knowledge. It referred to an organized structure of information. And John's saying, in the beginning, there was that plan. There was that structure. But then he goes on and says, the word, the logos, it was with God. And it was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And later he says the, the Logos was made flesh. And then we find out what was behind all this. It was all about Jesus. Jesus, the Word of God, the Logos of God, was involved in creating everything that we are and everything that's around us. Personally involved. Without him, John said, nothing was made that was made. In him was life. It was in him. Over in Colossians, it says he holds everything together. Nothing was made without him being involved. There in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. The word there for God is Elohim. It's an interesting word for God. You might think, expect it to be Yahweh, the personal name for God. But it's the word Elohim is chosen. Elohim is a funny word because im, whenever im's on the end of a word in Hebrew, it makes it plural. You know, um, whenever you say something in Hebrew, when you want to make it plural, um, you know, you put the em on the end of it. This is a plural name for God, Elohim. It's emphasizing the Trinity. It's emphasizing the fact that the three persons of the Godhead, as one God, were radically involved in creating this world, were radically involved in creating us. See, later, I mean, you see in verse 2, it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This was God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, involved in a plan that culminates in where we are right now, that someday will culminate in our redemption. God knew what was happening, and it's all happening according to his glorious plan. And he designed it, and everything that's here, that's why the Bible can say the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament showeth his handiwork, day unto day, uttereth speech, night unto night showeth forth knowledge. There is no language where the voice isn't heard. It's gone out to the ends of the world. See, it's all speaking. It's all talking. When we look, we don't have to be afraid of science. We don't have to be afraid of looking at things the way they are. We're going to find as we go deeper and deeper into studying science, we're going to find God more and more. We're going to find out that what his word tells us is exactly the way it is. As long as we think critically, as long as we look objectively and don't buy the conclusions of those people who don't know God. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, He, working according to His plan, created the heavens and the earth. And out of that came all of us. Out of that came man. Out of that came God's plan to relate to us, and that's why He made all this stuff. That's why it's all here for our pleasure. It's all here for us to enjoy and to participate in the whole universe. There are no other civilizations out there. There's no other. We're not just some little part of, you know, the, 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 the enterprise. It's not going to find those other civilizations. <laughs> they aren't there. This is what it's all about. Does the universe revolve around Earth? No, we're a part of it. We're a part of it. But God has it in a perfect balance to make it a place where we can live so that he can relate to us. Interesting, all that he's created, 
except for us. It's all going to be destroyed one day. The elements, they'll melt with a fervent heat. The heavens and the earth, Jesus said, will pass away. All of this stuff that he made, it's just decorations. It's just indications to show us a God who knows us, who recognizes us, who loves us, who wants to be in fellowship with us. The other stuff, it's just fingers pointing at God. And the God who created the heavens and the earth is with you right now. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, he knows you intimately. He knew you long before you knew him. And when you leave today, you take him with you. He said, I'll be with you always. All of God at your disposal. Well, not really disposal. That's a bad choice of words. But all of God is there for you. And in his creation, he just wants to show you what kind of a God he is so you'll trust him. What problems will we face? What limitations can we possibly possess? What difficulties are insurmountable in the face of a God who could speak the universe into existence? And that all these thousands of years later, and however old the universe is, we'll talk about that Wednesday night, but after all these years, it still bears the proof of who he is. It still bears his handiwork. So you'll notice, so you'll realize that he cares about you and loves you. Let's pray. God, we are amazed when we look at your creation because it does speak to us of just a little part of you. What you did is your finger work. Lord, through all of the assaults of those who would disprove you, they all come full circle and have to admit that there's a God. And then it's just a question of picking your God. But Lord, you've been consistent from the beginning. You've shared with us your truth. You've been honest with us. We thank you for doing that. God, if there are people today who all this is new to them, and I'm sure I lost a lot of people, Lord. I felt like we needed to go through some of this stuff. But Lord, I pray that everyone here would get this, that you're a big God who loves them that you made them, that you have a plan for their life. Lord, if any of them don't know you, help them to enter into a relationship with you today of understanding who you are and of desiring to fit in with your plan, to conform to what you want us to be, to learn to live in a way that is appropriate to our design. Lord, we bow to you as our great designer as our great sustainer, as the lover of our soul. And we thank you for caring about us. Thanks for the details, because we're all part of the details. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing a last song.